uh, Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, we're looking at verses 16 through 24 this morning. Page 947 in those blue, we, we lay out some Bibles for you in case you, you didn't bring one or you forgot it so that you can open it up and follow along with us in the Word of God. So in those Bibles, if you turn to page 947, that'll bring you to our text this morning. As I mentioned last week, apparently, apparently there was, uh, and if you weren't here last week, this will be new to you, if you were, it's just review. There was an attitude of arrogance, an attitude of arrogance among Gentile Christians towards the Jewish people, an arrogance that Paul both implicitly and explicitly addresses in this chapter of Romans, okay? But why the arrogance, you ask? Why the arrogance? Why the sinful pride? Why the feeling of superiority among the Gentile Christians when it came to to the Jews. Well, of course, uh, we know it is fundamentally because of sin, right? Fundamentally, it's, it's because of sin. But what contributed to this sin or maybe tempted them to manifest sin in, in this way? Well, first, beloved, it is no secret that anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism or a prejudice against or hatred toward the Jewish people had existed in many Gentile nations for countless centuries, okay? A prejudice that unfortunately continues to this day. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, just to give you, this is probably not the best example. I mean, I, it wouldn't be hard for me to find a ton of examples in our current day, just the Middle East. I'll just, we could start there. But just to give you an example, maybe one that you're not aware of, how many of you are familiar with Shirley MacLaine? Okay, so you'd have to be a little bit older to be familiar with her, but she's, she's no small, um, I'm, not, I'm not talking about her actual size. I'm saying she's, she's, she was well-known a generation ago, maybe. Uh, in 2012, she received the 40th uh, AFI Life Achievement Award. It's the highest honor for a career in the U.S. film industry. So she's no small person in that sense, okay? People know who she is. Uh, 2013, she received the Kennedy Center's Honor for Lifetime Contributions to American Culture through the Performing Arts. So she's, a, she's, she's been an actress, she's been a performer, she's been a writer, a philosopher. I'm using that word uh, very loosely. I'm trying to be careful because I don't, I don't want to say things that aren't appropriate about her, but here, here is something that she said in a, in a book that she wrote called What If? What If? Okay, you ready? What if most Holocaust victims were balancing their karma from ages before? Well, I'm going to explain it. If, you, if you're not sure what she's saying, I'm going to explain it. Okay, uh, Shirley MacLaine believes in reincarnation. That's the first thing. She also believes in UFOs and a lot of other things. Beloved, when people reject Jesus Christ, when they reject the truth, when they reject the light, they are left in darkness. So this is not strange in that sense. She's in darkness. So they come up with all kinds of crazy ideas. So she says, what if most Holocaust victims, you know what I'm talking about when we say Holocaust, right? The murder of six million Jews in concentration camps, torture and murder. Huh? 
What if most Holocaust victims were balancing their karma from ages before? You know what karma is? It's a lie. But the idea of karma is that if you do good, good will come back to you. If you do bad, bad will come back to you. Like you put out good energy, good energy comes back because the universe has to respond, right? When you take karma and apply it to reincarnation, then if you do good in a past life, good will come to you in this life. If you did bad in a past life or lives, then bad will come to you in this life. And so people who, who subscribe to this type of nonsense will actually look on someone who's suffering and say, must be bad karma, must have done something to deserve that. And when things are going well for them, they'll say, it's because I've done good. Maybe I was a good little person in a past life if they adopt reincarnation. So I'm going to read it again. What if most Holocaust victims were balancing their karma from ages before when they were Roman soldiers putting Christians to death, the crusaders who murdered millions in the name of Christianity, soldiers with Hannibal, or those who stormed across the Near East with Alexander, she asked in her book. You get what she's saying? She's saying, you know, in their past lives, maybe they were involved in these murderous events, and therefore, they had it coming. (laughs) Beloved, that attitude, that's anti-Semitism, okay? That's anti-Semitism. That is a hatred that exists. It's satanic. It's satanic. It's a hatred that exists against the Jewish people. And that they'll come up with all... There are people who deny the Holocaust, beloved. It never even occurred, is what they say. Like Iran. But that alone, this anti-Semitism, this, that culture, that alone is not the reason for this arrogance. Okay, It's not alone. Added to a culture of anti-Semitism was the fad, the fad, I just put two words together, that's amazing when I do that. I wanted to say sad fact, but I said fad. Wow. Was the sad fact that Israel or the Jewish nation, added to this anti-Semitism, was the sad fact that Israel or the Jewish nation had rejected or crucified her own Messiah. And not only that, but when given a chance after the resurrection of Jesus Christ to repent from that sin, she not only refused, but she became hardened and violent in her unbelief, even harassing and persecuting Christians, the church. In light of these things, one might begin to understand then why the Gentiles, who, get this, contrary to the nation of Israel, eagerly embraced. These pagans eagerly embraced the Messiah and flooded into the church. And so in light of all that, you can understand they were consequently or could have been consequently tempted to embrace sinful feelings of superiority over the Jews and or to wrongly think that the primary focus of God's manifold plan was the salvation of the Gentiles. Or that they, the Gentiles, had taken Israel's place as the new people of God. Huh? Beloved, while our sinful pride can and does manifest itself in many destructive ways, I would say a majority of problems that occur in the church are a result of pride. Sinful pride. The pride, though, 
specifically in view here in Romans 11 is what I would refer to as, others have referred to as spiritual or religious pride. Spiritual or religious pride. It is in this context basically someone having a sense of superiority for having attained a place in the people of God because he or she thinks somehow or in some way they deserved it more than others. Now, that idea is foolish, beloved. Huh? It's foolish. But it is an idea, if we're honest, if we'll search out our hearts, it is an idea that often takes up residence in our own heart. Listen to this quote. Just listen to it in light of everything I've said from another pastor. He says this. How easy it is for us to say, it should say we believe, we believe that salvation is totally dependent upon the grace of God. Right? Stop. Don't read, don't read, don't read. Is it dependent upon the grace of God? If you're reading, you're not obeying your pastor right now. That's already a problem because I've asked you to do something very simple. Okay. Is it dependent upon the grace of God? Right. Undeserved merit. Undeserved kindness, right? Undeserved kindness. Not because of anything we've done. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes. How easy it is, is it for us to say we believe that salvation is totally dependent upon the grace of God, but to act, but to act as if we somehow deserved it. We often, here's an example, view unbelievers with disdain. looking down on their unbelief, mocking their moral and spiritual darkness. That's why I want to be careful with Shirley MacLaine. I want to be careful that I don't step over, thinking somehow I'm better than her. I'm just saved, beloved. I've just experienced the grace of God. Otherwise, I'd be in the same moral chaos she finds herself. Maybe I wouldn't be expressing it that way, but I'd be expressing it. I'd be in darkness as well if it were not that God came and rescued me. Huh? Okay, and he goes on to say, rather than weeping for their souls, just let that sit, beloved. I found myself doing this very thing. And, and, and I'm going to tell you something. The longer you are a Christian, then the more st- greatness that comes into your life because you have Christ, you know, he's transforming you. He's changing you. You begin to move away from those old sinful patterns and tendencies and, and begin to walk in righteousness. Very easily, very easily, you begin to can develop a feeling of superiority because now you really are different than your unbelieving neighbors. You really feel and look different. But why are you different, beloved? It's only by the grace of God. But so easy we begin to take credit. Pride, pride. And then we look down on our poor, nasty, disgusting neighbors. I think that's enough. I think I could send you home right now and just leave you with that. I mean, that was enough for me. I I'm still wrestling with it. So before we read our text, let me point out one thing, because we're going to dive into the Word of God this morning. In verse 13, Paul says, so we're not, um, that's not our section, but it's context. In verse 13, Paul says, now I am speaking to you Gentiles. I am speaking to you Gentiles, or that is to Gentile believers in Rome. So then based on the immediate context, we know that Paul's repeated use of the word you, you, in the verses that follow, verses 16 through 24, most certainly refer to Gentile Christians. You with me? 
Just wanted to make sure you saw that before we begin to read. Let's read uh, the entire section, and then I'm, I'm going to do my best to begin to break it down for you. But as we work through some of the details, and they're a little complex, okay, don't lose sight of the fact that Paul's objective in this section, in this chapter, one of them is to confront any spiritual or religious pride on the part of the Gentiles in the church. You with me? That's... Don't lose sight of that as we kind of move through it. Now, I'm going to back up to verse 11, and I'm going to read all the way actually to verse 25, which is part of another section. It's all one chapter, but it's part of another section we'll look at later. But I want to read all of it, because we're looking at 16 through 24, for context this morning. So let your eyes come back to verse 11. Follow along as I read now. Paul writes this. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch, then, as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? We covered all that last week. 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note, then, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in Again, for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, And the NIV translates that conceited. 
do, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Wow, there's a lot there uh, for us to talk about, beloved. We're not going to get to all of it today. I'm just going to tell you that right now. This is a two-parter. Let's start with uh, verse 16, okay? Let's just start at the beginning. I think verse 16, I'm going to tell you this, I think it's a transitional verse. This is part of some of the decisions that have to be made when you're trying to interpret this passage. What is this referring to? Is it referring to the text before, the text that comes after? Is it referring to both? I think it's transitional, and by that I mean it helps Paul transition from what he has just said in the previous verses, 11 through 15, that we just got through reading, to what he goes on to say in the verses that follow. Okay? Transitional. You understand the idea of transitional? It takes me from one room to the next, like a hallway. I'll explain that more in a moment. Now, in verse 16, Paul uses two different metaphors. Two different metaphors. You guys know what metaphors are? So when my wife used to tell the kids, you're going to be dead meat when your father gets home, that was a metaphor. As an example of a metaphor, they're not actually going to be dead meat, but in a sense, they are going to be dead meat. Okay, all right, you got it. Um, Most Bible commentators agree uh, that they are parallel metaphors, parallel metaphors, meaning that while they are different, Okay, there's two different metaphors going on in verse 16. They are both being used to illustrate the same idea or make the same point. The first one comes from the ceremonial life of Israel. The second one comes from agriculture. Okay, so what are they being used by Paul to illustrate? This is the technical stuff here, so stick with me as we move through this. What uh, what are they being used by Paul to illustrate? Well, first, I like the way the NASB, New American Standard Bible, uh, translates the first part of verse 16, so let me share that with you. It puts it simply like this. I think this is just more straightforward. If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. Okay? Uh, That's it. (laughs) What? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. All right. This is no doubt a reference by Paul to one of God's requirements for Israel that we find in Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 15, verses 20 and 21. You don't have to turn there. There, Moses instructs Israel to offer the first of their dough to the Lord. The first of their dough to the Lord. The piece of dough offered is called holy by Paul. Holy by Paul, which simply means here that it is Uh, Here's a word you don't often use, consecrated. It is consecrated or set apart for God or to God. Is that simple enough? Set apart for God or to God. It's, It's for him. It's for his purposes given to him, set apart, to be used by him. Okay? Paul insists that if the first piece of dough is holy, so is the remaining lump. So then the principle then that we find here is when a representative piece is consecrated to God or set apart to or for for him, the whole represents or the whole belongs to him as well. The representative piece is set apart, the whole is set apart as well. Another way to put it is symbolically, the first piece represented the whole. 
Okay, right now you're probably like, who cares? Who cares about dough? I do, actually. I think most of you do. Uh, dough's important. Anyway, <laughs> I mean, you know, you read the Bible text, you're like, what is going on here? But there must be a reason, right? Why would Paul put this here? So what exactly does the first piece of dough and the remaining lump, what are they supposed to symbolize? We already got the principle, right? So symbolically, the first piece represents the whole. I got it. Okay. But what, are the, what do these things represent, and why is Paul bringing it? Well, and, and by the way, I said it was transitional, so what in the world could it possibly have to do with the verses that have just, we just looked at, or the verses that are before it, 11 through 15, or the hope of the future restoration for the nation of Israel? Because that's kind of what you find there, 11 through 15, there is a hope for the future restoration of the nation of Israel. So what does this dough and all this have to do with that? All right. Well, I believe the second, these are great questions you're asking, by the way, I believe the second metaphor in verse 16, the second one, which I told you most believe is parallel to the first. Remember I said that? Meaning that they're different, but they're pointing to the same idea or thing, communicating the same thing. The second one will help me understand the first one. Paul says in the second part of verse 16 that if the root is holy, if the root is holy, so are the branches. Okay. That's an agricultural metaphor then. We can relate to that, right? We're familiar with trees. <laughs> now, the verses that follow, that is verses 17 through 18, make it very clear to us that the branches in this metaphor represent the Jews. There is, there is absolute agreement across the board with all Bible scholars. The, this metaphor, specifically talking about the branches, it refers to the Jews. The context makes that very clear. You with me so far? Okay, that's good. That helped. That's helpful. What's the root, though? What's the root? Well, a majority of Bible scholars have concluded that the root is most likely intended to symbolize the patriarchs of Israel, the patriarchs of Israel, or the forefathers of the Jewish people or the Jewish nation, okay? Patriarchs, forefathers. And who are they? Hello. Hello. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, it could also simply be referring to Abraham alone. Abraham alone. Because really, Isaac and Jacob are an extension of Abraham. Everything is found in Abraham. They're an extension of him. So, in other Jewish check, uh, text, by the way, uh, text written, not phone. In other Jewish texts, both Abraham and the patriarchs are referred to as a root. Okay? A root. So, let me try now to make sense of all of this to you, for you. If the metaphors are parallel, then I believe the metaphor of the root and the first piece of dough, then, would both be symbolizing or speaking about the patriarchs of Israel or Abraham. Or Abraham. And the branches and the rest of the dough or the whole lump would both be symbolizing the Jews, or the descendants of Israel, or the Jewish nation. With me? And so, as the first piece of dough or root was set apart for or to God, so then the remaining lump or branches are as well. Are as well. But how were the patriarchs of Israel set apart or consecrated to God? 
I would say it was through the special covenant that God made with them. That is the covenant God made initially with Abraham and extended to his son Isaac and to his son Jacob, the patriarchs or the forefathers of Israel. It is called, beloved, the Abrahamic covenant. We've spoken about it many times. So then, the idea is, if they have been consecrated to God via the covenant, and they have, then the Jewish people as a whole have been as well. Here are some comments now concerning verse 16 from other Bible teachers that might, you might find helpful. I found them helpful, and so I'll give you a few of them. Here's one. They're basically saying what I just said. They're just kind of getting it into a, a single sentence or two. As the Jewish patriarchs belong to God by covenant, so do their descendants who are included in that covenant. Okay? Here's another one. God established his permanent relationship with Israel through his covenant with their forefather, Abraham. They were consecrated, set apart, as a people in the consecration of Abraham, the piece of dough, the root. Here's another one. Since Israel is rooted in these covenant promises made to Abraham, the nation is set apart for God. And lastly, one more. If the root, Abraham, and the other patriarchs is holy, then the branches, their descendants, are holy too. And God's work with those branches will not be complete until they bear the spiritual fruit he intends to produce in and through them. Until the end of the age, when they actually become the people they were destined to be. So, that's a lot of stuff, right? As I said earlier, verse 16 is a tran- it's transitional because... Why? Having established that Israel as a people, although presently hardened in unbelief, right? That's where they are right now. They are holy or set apart for God. Having established that, it not only reinforces the certain hope then for a future restoration of the nation of Israel, as verses 11 through 15 have implied, Okay, that's the connecting piece, but it also paves the way, these metaphors pave the way for verses 17 through 24 by introducing the metaphor of the root in the branches that dominates these verses and that Paul uses to show that the present situation of Jewish unbelief and Gentile belief is simply a temporary outworking of the grace of God and should not be a source of Gentile pride. That's a lot I just said. And so if you're spinning a little bit, that's okay. That's okay. Let's move on, okay? Just try to get the the big ideas here. Now, now that we've gone through that, let's look at verses 17 and 18. 17 and 18. Here, Paul goes on to now make full use of 
of the root and branch metaphor in order to warn the Gentile Christians concerning the spiritual pride they had toward the Jewish people. Look back at the text, verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, who's you? Gentile Christians, right? We know that by the context. And you, although (laughs) a wild olive shoot, we'll talk about that, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is you. I'm sorry, it is not you. Very important to get all the words. It is not you who support the root but the root that supports you. Paul uses the picture here of an olive tree to fill out now the imagery that he's already given us in verse 16 of the root and branches, the root and branches. If you don't know, the olive tree, it would make sense that he would use olive tree, was the most widely cultivated fruit tree in the Mediterranean area. That area where Paul would have been and Israel and all that area, the Mediterranean area. In case you don't know, I don't want to assume anything. A cultivated tree, a cultivated tree is one that is planted and tended by humans, by humans, as opposed to one that is not or that it just grows unattended by itself in the wild. You with me? Cultivated. It's cared for. It's, it's taken care of uh, by humans. Paul also speaks in this passage of an agricultural process called grafting. Grafting. How many of you know what that is? Wow, I feel ignorant. Well, I am. I mean, on many things, I certainly am, and so I have to read and learn. So I wasn't, I wasn't sure. I thought I knew, but it's, I found the whole process fascinating. If, if you grew up in a city uh, like me, you, you may not have any idea what this is unless you had fruit trees and actually took care of them. But in short, it is where a branch or a section of a stem from one tree is taken and transplanted, transplanted into the stock of another tree so that it begins to grow and produce from that new tree. That's amazing. That is so cool. Did you know you could do that? I mean, yes, some of, obviously many of you know. Uh, but for those of you that are like, that is really neat. There's, um, there are several re- reasons why people do this. I mean, I mean, one reason that we people, farmers, do it today is if the fruit tree is so badly damaged... Uh, there may still be life in the root, the root system, the stock, but it's just so damaged, they'll take from a good, uh, another tree and they'll transplant those branches into that tree and that gives it life. They can save the tree in that way. All right? So there's other reasons too, disease, all of these things. Uh, in the ancient world, olive trees would grow for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, and over time the branches would just die out. And so they did this grafting process. New ones would be grafted into the tree so that it would continue to produce fruit. You with me so far? All right? You've got to know all this stuff. We've got to figure it out before we can even try to figure out what the passage is saying. If we don't know all this stuff, it won't make any sense. Now, I think it's worth noting that Paul, in referring to Christian Gentiles, says they were a wild olive shoot. They were a wild olive shoot. You see that in verse 17? And we know they were grafted into not just any olive tree, but a cultivated olive tree. That's why I pointed out what cultivated meant. Uh, Verse 24, cared for, taken care of. uh, It's a producing tree, a fruit-producing tree. Now, in contrast, beloved, to the cultivated olive tree, 
that was known for its ability to produce fruit, the wild olive tree was notoriously unfruitful. Unfruitful. Isn't that interesting? One writer comments that Paul's comparison of Gentiles to it, a wild olive tree or branch, may be intended, I think it is, to prick the Gentiles' pride and sense of superiority. Just another little stab right there. In a good way, in a holy way, a holy stab. (laughs) Uh, Rebuking in love. So let's take a closer look at these verses. Paul says, but if some of the branches were broken off, if some of the branches were broken off, what is he talking about? These branches are the unbelieving Jews. We know that if you've been with me through 9, up 10, now into 11, you would probably get that. Just You wouldn't have to do that. You would know that already based on the context. These branches are the unbelieving Jews that have been cut off by God. They are the unbelieving ones hardened by God. We saw that hardening in verses 7 through 10. Paul refers to their unbelief in verse 20 of the same chapter. They are the unbelieving ones hardened by God, cut off by God. God has pruned his olive tree, if you will. Are you with me? Pruned. But that is not all that he has done. He has also grafted in wild olive shoots. Who are they? Right. Believing Gentiles. Gentile Christians have been grafted in among the other branches that remain, the other Jews or the remnant of Israel. Remember, when we talk about Israel rejecting their Messiah, the whole did, but there was still a remnant by God's grace and electing sovereign choice that believed. Don't forget that. That's the context. So there are some, certainly, that believed. In fact, the church, when on the day of Pentecost, it was all Jews believing, but that quickly changed. That quickly changed. And the nation rejected the Messiah, and the doors opened wide to the Gentiles, and they flooded into the church. But here's what we need to remember, that as Gentiles, we, they, to whom Paul is writing, have no natural relationship to Abraham or the patriarchs and the promises given to them. They are, we are, but wild olive shoots that have been grafted in. Consider this, consider what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 11 and th- through 13, Paul says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time before coming to Christ, separated from Christ, alienated from the common wealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Oh, but 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once or who once were far off, who's that? Gentiles have been brought near by the blood of Christ. They, the Gentiles, beloved, 
I keep saying they because I want to stay in the context of whom he was writing, but that would, we can apply this to ourselves. They, the Gentiles, do not naturally belong to the tree. That's basically the idea. They don't naturally belong to the tree, but by God's grace, we'll see that in verse 22, and their faith or our faith, see that in verse 20, they are now and we are now able to share in the rich spiritual blessings of salvation that comes as a result of their contact with the root of the olive tree. With the root of the olive tree. Completing the sentence, he begins in verse 17. He says in verse 18, Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. So here's another question. Is Paul talking about the Jewish branches that have been cut off the tree, which, as we know, is a majority, uh, or the Jewish ones that still remain on the tree? That would be Jews in the church, or the, uh, or the believing remnant in the church, or is he talking about both? Is he talking about both? He could be thinking of both. He could be thinking of both. It is clear, we know for sure from the immediate context, that he was certainly thinking about the unbelieving Jews. He had them in mind, okay? So when it says, don't be arrogant toward the branches, remember, the ones that have been cut off, don't think you're something, don't think you're superior to them, don't think it for a second. He certainly is thinking about them. But here's something interesting. We'll get there. Five, six, seven years from now, in chapter 14, in chapter 14, there's some really, and I, I really want to get there because it speaks directly to the situation of the church and problems and conflicts within the church. But guess what? Even though this was predominantly a Gentile church, there were Jews in the church in Rome. And there were problems. There were problems because of it. There shouldn't have been, but there were. But there were And so Paul shows concern there in chapter 14 to resolve some of the conflicts that had arisen between Gentiles and Jews, believing Jews. Beloved, these are Christians. Can you believe that? Christians have conflict with one another? I can't, man. I was shocked. I got into ministry. I thought things would go so smoothly. Boy, I was wrong. I was wrong. So I think, I think then, because Paul knows he's going to write 14, he knows he's going to write what he's writing in Romans, he has that in mind, I think then that he has both in mind. He's just talking about Jews, not only believers, don't be arrogant toward your other Christian Jewish brother, but even those that have been cut off, certainly. And now look back at verse 18. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. (laughs) I love this. I I love Paul. If you are... (laughs) He tells them not to do it. He warns them. You have, look at, you have no place for any feeling of superiority. What are you guys doing? What are you thinking? Do you get this? Don't be arrogant toward them, but if you are, let me remind you of something. It is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. I am telling you, you wild olive shoots who have been graciously grafted into God's olive tree among the natural Jewish branches that are already there, I am warning you not to be arrogant toward them, or as the NIV says, boast over them. Boast over them, the Jewish people. 
And if you are arrogant toward them, then you need to remember, and, and this is basically the idea that you owe your spiritual existence to the Jewish nation. It's not the other way around. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think you are? Who do we think we are? This is pride, beloved. This is foolish, sinful, nasty, disgusting pride manifesting itself in, in this way, in the spiritual arrogance. One writer says this, Since they were like a wild olive shoot grafted to a regular cultivated olive tree, they were indebted to Israel, not Israel to them. Salvation is from the Jews, as Jesus says in John 4, 22. Another writer says this, and I think this gives us good balance when we're trying to think through some of these things. It's a little extended, but I found it helpful. Hopefully it'll be helpful for you. Gentile Christians who boast over Jews are demonstrating an attitude of disdain for the Jewish heritage. Yet it is that very heritage upon which the Gentile Christians themselves depend for their own spiritual standing. For the root that gives spiritual nourishment to Jewish and Gentile believers alike is the patriarchs, the forefathers of Israel, as recipients and transmitters of the promises of God. He goes on to say, Jews are in the same position as Gentiles. Now, don't listen. We don't want to make a, a, a flip, a conclusion, and say Jews are, are better than Gentiles. They are better off. They've always been better off, beloved, in the sense of their relationship with God. They're not better, right? Isn't that funny? What was the problem with the Jewish people when, when Jesus started making some comments or hanging out or even suggesting that he was going to, salvation would come to Gentiles? Why, what, were, what, what, were they, what happened then? What did the Jewish people do? Oh, you got to be out of your mind. You got to be kidding. No way. Those tax collectors, those sinners, those nasty, disgusting, vile, filthy people. And even if that was all true, even if it was all true, and maybe in some cases it was, they didn't recognize their own depravity, their own need for salvation from God, their own need for grace. Pride. Pride, beloved. Jews are in the same position as Gentiles held under sin's power and needing to respond to God in faith to be saved. Yet salvation comes, don't forget, only to those who are of Abraham's seed. We've been grafted in, beloved. The people of God are one, and that people has both a Jewish root and a continuing Jewish element. Just something to think about. One preacher added this, he paraphrases verse 18, puts it in his own words. He says this, remember that the Abrahamic covenant is theirs. It's the Jews. And you, we Gentiles, are only secondary beneficiaries. Therefore, do not disdain them, the Jews, or their heritage. Okay? We're going to stop there for today. And next time we'll pick right up where we left off, which is verse 19, because there's a lot of, uh... now don't check out on me. Don't check out. 
We'll pick up at verse 19. One writer wrote this just concerning, now let's back up a little bit and talk about just, uh, because there, we primarily don't, we don't have this particular historical situation at Summit Bible Church, right? In the sense that uh, there's, there's Jews. Now, we, that we might have spiritual pride. We might think that we're, uh, we might make the mistake of thinking somehow we're better than those Jews that killed their Messiah. That would be a mistake, beloved. That would be a mistake, Okay. Um, but we don't have maybe the context of even having Jewish folks within the church and, and maybe looking down upon them for things that they're struggling with. It's interesting because we get to chapter 14. That's exactly what goes on. The Jews have kind of come out of an, a way of life. They were under the law. There were certain things they couldn't do and could do. Uh, salvation has opened the door free and wide, allowing a lot of freedom, like even things you eat, okay? And the Jews were still having a hard time with what they could and couldn't eat. And the Gentiles are like, we can eat anything, and we always have, so who cares, you know? <laughs> and I know I'm not. I, I'm, I'm, anyway, we'll get to it, and then I'll do, a, uh, do it justice. But the, the Gentiles then looked down upon, they looked down upon the Jews because they wouldn't partake of the other food. Like, you know, look at you, look at you. There was just a, an attitude there of superiority. And then, of course, the Jews would judge them <laughs> uh, for eating stuff that they thought maybe they shouldn't be eating. Any, it just goes back and forth. It's ridiculous, foolishness. But um, one writer says this, spiritual pride is an insidious, insidious enemy that we all continually must guard against and fight. And I, I said spiritual pride is really, if to define that, is having a sense of superiority for having attained a place in the people of God. Beloved, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have attained a place in the people of God. Are you with me? Okay? If you have not, you need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because you're outside. You're outside in the dark. You're awaiting the judgment of God. That's all you're awaiting. You have no hope. You can have hope, but you're without hope and under God's condemnation. But for us who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have we have a place now in the people of God, but it's thinking then that somehow or in some way I have deserved it more than someone else. Huh? <laughs> no one deserves it. Nobody. You'll never attain to a place where you deserve it. That's a mistake too. Like I said, this sometimes I find this with seasoned Christians. Seasoned Christians should be more humble. But sometimes they're proud. They got confused somewhere along the way. They forgot any good that was coming out of their lives was something they must attribute to God and His work inside of them, to the Spirit, that Holy Spirit that dwells inside of them. It is His fruit of righteousness that's manifested in their life, not their own. And so they begin to look down on other brothers and sisters. They begin to look down on the unbelieving. They begin to think. They may not say that, but it's an attitude. They're usually very judgmental. In a negative, in a bad sense. In a bad sense. Very critical. They're very critical. That's spiritual pride, beloved. In one way or another, it's manifesting itself. I'm going to tell you uh, what the remedy is. The remedy in the, one remedy is understand the facts, right? 
I mean, that's what Paul's doing. Are you guys kidding me? I'm going to give you these analogies, give you these metaphors. I'm going to remind you of what's really going on. You don't support the root. The root supports you. You've been grafted in. Got to be kidding me. That'd be cool if Paul actually talked like that. It'd be a lot easier. Like if he just said you were reading it. You've got to be kidding me. But that's how, that is what's going on, really, in one sense. But here's another remedy for us. Even if it's not, we're not speaking of the context of Jewish people, we can still manifest spiritual pride, beloved. The remedy is the gospel. The remedy is the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself. That's what we talk about. It's on the back of the bulletins. I mean, in um, condensed form, obviously, there is much more to the gospel than the little back part of the... But it, that's a good place to start. Do you see your bulletins? I made reference to it before, but look on the back. Preach the gospel to yourself. Do you think, why do we... The gospel, I've said this before, but I'm going to keep saying it. I'm going to keep saying it until God takes me home. Listen, the gospel is not just for people to come to Christ. You bet it's for that. And so we keep telling people, come to Jesus Christ and be saved. And I'm saying that to you right now. If you're here and you have no saving relationship with the Lord, then you need to bow your heart and your mind now. Right now, and surrender your life to Him and find in Him and Him alone the salvation that we've been singing about all morning. Okay? All right? Lost my train of thought. Very bad. Oh, here it is. But it's also, it comes back eventually. It's also what happens one day when it doesn't come back? What happens? <laughs> that is when I have to leave the pulpit. So um, it, it is also for Christians, beloved. This is what we talk about. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is for us. It's for us. It's for us. Huh? We continue to preach it, rehearse it, examine it, study it, memorize it, say it to ourselves, say it to our spouses, say it to our children. Why? I need to hear it again and again because within me is no good thing. And so to Put that no good thing down. I need to preach the good thing to myself. There is no room for any sinful pride in the glories of the gospel, beloved. You won't find it. That innocent one, the sinless one, willingly, lovingly, sovereignly went to his cross and died for sinners like us who didn't deserve it, who will never deserve it, that he might win them to himself. Where in the world is our pride for that? Where? Where do you find it? You don't. It's our stupidity that we allow to seep through. Preach the gospel to yourself. Beloved, not only is it give me hope, right? During difficult and dark days that we all face, it gives me hope. Because he resurrected, baby. He resurrected. And I have the hope of resurrection and living with him in a world not like this one. Right? It gives me hope. But you know what else it does? It suffocates that monster inside of me. Puts them in a stronghold. I'm not a wrestler, so I don't even know what terminology to use right here. But you got the idea. It puts them down, right? Submit, sucker, submit. That's right. Uh, the gospel, I don't have the power to do that myself. 
If I try doing it myself, I'm going to lose that battle. But the gospel has the power. I preach the gospel, the Holy Spirit in me comes alive. And some good sanctifying work starts to happen, right? That's what we need to do, beloved. That's what we need to do. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the treasure. (laughs) Wow, it is a treasure. Father, help us to just wrestle with it every week, throughout the week, as we to wrestle with it in a good way, to, 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 to grasp it, Lord. Help us to grasp it, to, to not only know it, but to believe it, to believe it, to come under it, Father. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your grace. It is by grace alone that any of us, any of us, have become your people. Father, help us to root out, root out spiritual pride, arrogance, Help us just to root out pride, Father. It manifests itself in all kinds of destructive and horrific ways. Certainly in this context, spiritual, religious pride. May our hearts break. We read it earlier. While the Gentiles are looking down upon the Jews, Paul's heart is breaking. It's breaking for his Jewish brethren. He unbelievably even said in another chapter he'd be willing to be accursed, give up his own salvation. If that was possible for the sake of his brethren, that was his heart. He was broken. He was broken for the lost. He didn't stand in judgment over them. He was broken. May that be our heart as well. Change us, Father, because our hearts are messed up. Change us, Father. We repent even now of sinful pride. May we walk humbly before you, God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.